yeah, do you just hate me? Yeah. You know, and like also who's going to stop you? Capital W, we will. Like, <laughs> that's the, it. The armed militia yeah. order. You know, just as they would stop a, an assault of a woman in public or yeah. like, the, like, I'm, Lennon is really spitting here because yeah. he's answering the questions in my mind as I'm thinking them. Welcome to Left Unread. Welcome to Left Unread, a podcast where we engage in a radical self-education. On the quest to find out what the hell we're supposed to be doing in this late stage hellscape. Yes. What is to be done? Yes. Is the ultimate question. Please not protracted people's war. Okay. Uh, my name is Aaron. My name is Will. And we are the two guys. This week, we're continuing our read of Lenin's State and Revolution, an absolute banger of a piece of theory. Yeah, absolutely. I will say that I, like you, walked away from this text with something of like an awakened zeal, an awakened, uh, I wouldn't call it optimism, I wouldn't go that far, but like the idea that there is an answer, there is something that can and should be done, and I feel, I don't know, it made me feel good to know that it's not hopeless. Yeah, it made me feel more rooted. I've I've said that every week so far. I guess reading theory will do that to you, but <laughs> less pie in the sky, more you know, feet on the ground, boots on the ground. Yeah, and I appreciate the kind of uh, pragmatism of Lenin and his response to a lot of the questions that he explores here in these last three chapters. Uh, for this episode, we're reading chapters four, five, and six, and you had a chapter seven. Yes, I, it's, I didn't see this the last week, but I do have chapter seven, which says the experience of the Russian Revolution. And then there's a, there's a postscript, which is so lovely, because Lenin says, I had no time to write a single line of the chapter. I was, quote, interrupted by political crisis, the eve of the October Revolution of 1917. Such an interruption can only be welcomed. The writing of the second part of this pamphlet will probably have to be put off. It is more pleasant and useful to go through the experience of a revolution than to write about it. Word. Word. I mean, you know, that's something that you have to reckon with is that Lennon did the damn thing. You know, he's not just talking on paper. He actually put it into practice. And I think that that's where a lot of that kind of pragmatism comes from, this idea that he has concrete answers to a lot of the big questions around what a communist revolution will look like because he was on the eve of it and he had been, I mean, he fucking did it. Yeah. They had been organizing for it up till this point. He had been writing up to this point. You know, this pamphlet ostensibly was written to spur more people towards that revolution. Mm -hmm. Last week, we talked about the formation of the state, the fact that we need to know more history. Really, a lot of this revolutionary experience is rooted in history. And that was a big part of the first three chapters here, because most of this is based on the commune, which actually did come as a surprise to me. I didn't expect that. I mean, I... I've always heard the term scientific socialism, mm -hmm. but it is really heartening to be to see that they're like, we're doing this based on evidence, you know, not not just the vibes. Yeah, not just uh, some sort of utopian ideal. They, yeah. He says many, many times that they are not utopians, yeah. uh, but instead, and in this latter half, he is quite laudatory toward Marx for the scientific approach that he takes to the theory. What I recall from the first three chapters is there's a lot of conversation around the state and defining the state, what it is, and the need for the dictatorship of the proletariat, I think, comes out pretty strongly. Yeah, I think the latter half of this book really gets into more of the brass tacks of what it means for the state to wither away. Because at first read, you might think that's a little bit nebulous, right? What does that mean for the state to, to wither away? And I think Lenin puts it into terms and ideas that are much more concrete, even if they are still pretty abstract at this point. And Lenin recognizes that, too. He says that, like, 
you know, we won't know what the withering away really looks like until it's happening already. Mm-hmm. It's a, a bit of a dialectical process, I guess. Lennon makes a great quote in here about a man going bald by losing the last single remaining hair <laughs> on his head. It's like you weren't bald before that because you have one little baby yeah. curl poking out of your forehead. I really appreciated the that. It's like you still have that one little picking cowlick. And it's like, no, that's still a state. That's still a state. You're not utopian. I will say the other thing that came up in the first three chapters that we had questions about during the reading last time that I think he deliberately defines this go round is this idea of a primitive democracy. We weren't really sure what he meant by that at the start of the state and revolution in these first three chapters where he kind of name drops it a couple of times when we even talked about it on the last episode. And I think he gives a pretty clear, more definitive definition of that here in this section. Yeah. I also one part that is really interesting from this second half is the overcoming of democracy. That wasn't something that I expected. A communist relationship with democracy is one that shouldn't seem so tenuous, but upon first read, it kind of did. Up until the point where he talks about how democracy will wither away, I was like, okay, how are we overcoming democracy? What is more equal than that idea? And I think he really puts it into terms here where the authority of democracy actually lies in a way that I think will make sense to many people. I'll be curious to explore that together and look at some of the quotes together and discuss that today, because I think there was something deep in my gut that when I think of the word democracy, what I'm thinking of is not necessarily a state apparatus, but something that demonstrates everybody's equal participation in in decision making. Mm -hmm. And so every time he talked about overcoming or overthrowing democracy, it felt there was that Western education part of my mind that was like, that sounds like totalitarianism. Much the same, much the same. but. I really appreciate when he said that democracy is still a subordination of the minority to the majority, even if we don't think about it in terms of like organized violence, violence in the philosophical sense, Mm -hmm. then it still is. Also part of my Western upbringing that I was like, oh, we're going to get rid of democracy. (laughs) Is that what we're doing here, Lennon? So I guess to start us off, let's just launch into the first topic here. You know, uh, if you've been listening closely, you might realize that I'm a little more on the status side of things, where uh, Aaron here is a little more of an anarchist. And Lennon starts by pretty heavily knocking down most anarchists. Just shitting on anarchism. Yeah. Not that, again, that the internet is not real life, but most anarchist hate I've seen online is directed towards Lennon. What is interesting to me is that Lennon, at the same time, shits on anarchists quite a lot. and explains why he thinks that they are wrong, while also being pretty sympathetic to the overall goal and recognizing that there is a a shared goal between communists and anarchists. And I even have a quote in here where I said he ironically sounds a little bit like an anarchist. Why don't you start with your first quote? Yeah, I I really like here, again, I'm on the the well-read edition of this State and Revolution with the introduction by Alan Woods. And uh, on page 61, he says that we do not differ at all with anarchists on the question of the abolition of state. Like, that is a common aim that we have. Uh, But then he continues, to achieve this aim, we must temporarily make use of the instruments, resources, and methods of state power. So they do talk about this later. I don't know if that's Marx specifically, but there's a whole point where it's like the distinctions between communism and anarchists in chapter six. But he's really just talking about the time frame of things. He's saying that they demand abolition immediately, where... Lenin, at least, is more concerned with what is going to come after. You know, the, the goal is not the abolition of the state. The goal is the implementation of a communist mode of production. It's less so like, oh, we just have to blast the state and then we'll figure it out from there. It's like, no, no, 
we are going to get rid of the state. That's part of our process, but mm-hmm. there is more to it than just that. What comes after is equally as important. Yeah, I had that exact same quote marked here, and it really seems to be about the kind of transitory form of state that Lenin interprets from Marx and then wants to put into practice and sees that as the primary distinction between communists and anarchists. Because he says that the resources and methods of the state power against the exploiters, just as the dictatorship of the oppressed class, is temporarily necessary for the abolition of classes. And so I think that's an interesting analogy that he makes, recognizing that if you want to create a dictatorship of the proletariat, or if you want to overthrow the exploitation of the proletariat, the first thing you have to do is become the dictatorship of the proletariat, where they have to use that apparatus of power to absolve their own exploitation, Mm -hmm. which I think is maybe oversimplified from an anarchist perspective as some sort of totalitarian response. I agree. One thing I think that Lenin gets at here that I don't necessarily agree with is that he says that the oppression of the resistance will be simple. He (laughs) says that it will be simple to organize the now ruling class, which is the the proletariat, Proletariat. you know, into an organization that can suppress the bourgeois. And I think that that's a little pie in the sky, if you ask me, because they had a civil war right after. I mean, just to base it on the Russian Revolution, like Mm -hmm. there was resistance that I get they did overcome it ultimately, I guess. So who knows? But what came out on the other end? Was it really a dictatorship of the proletariat? I don't know. Yeah, and I think that that really comes down to class consciousness, essentially. There's going to be a divided proletariat until everyone has a shared consciousness. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are certain goals or certain aims that can and probably are shared by the overwhelming majority of the proletariat, but not all aims or all goals are going to be shared by the proletariat, which is going to create some tension, mm-hmm. even if the proletariat gain control over the mechanisms of the state and can use that to their own benefit, there's going to be disagreement about exactly what that looks like among the proletariat, in large part because there are different levels of class consciousness and different levels of, I don't know, other shit that divides people, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think... Lenin does talk about some conditions here that are required for that. I mean, he, t- he says mass literacy, universal literacy is like a requirement for mm-hmm. that kind of overarching class consciousness. And I do think that I agree. In part two, he talks a lot about how the Democratic Republic is like the closest step to revolution just because it allows more freedom along the proletariat to to develop that class conscious, which is something I hadn't considered before. You know, it's like even if this is kind of a facade of freedom that we live under, it's still capitalism in the end of the day. These boundaries still allow us to do what we're doing. I mean, even us, like specifically us. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If we lived in an oppressive dictatorship, could we record a podcast about overthrowing the state machine? I highly doubt it. Yeah, this would have had to have been an underground sort of thing yeah. if we were brave enough to participate in it at all in that sort of situation. Cool pen names. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I totally agree. I mean, I just think that it's... An interesting point here. There, there are like goals to be met before, and I think that that's a that's a point that actually can, you can connect with a lot of people for that. Right now, things that can be done to create at least the conditions for the creation of revolution mm-hmm. or revolutionary ideals, at least to bring it back to that kind of schism between communists and anarchists. I think that that's a very similar kind of situation because, again, they do share the abolition of the state as an aim, but they have a difference of opinion and the best way to get to that. And I think like with anarchism, it really comes down to authority and hierarchy. And Lenin recognizes that in the communist revolution, there is going to be a situation where 
people are going to be in authority over others. There yeah. is there is going to be some sort of hierarchy of power that's going to need to be maintained until that can wither away over time. Yeah. I really love the way that they talk about a natural authority in this sense, like an authority that appears because of the methods of production. You know, Ingalls says, he, it's Lennon saying, Ingalls expounds on the same idea, but he says, quote, take a factory, a railway, a ship on the high seas, said Ingalls. It's not clear that not one of these complex technical establishments based on the use of machinery and the systematic cooperation of many people could function without a certain amount of subordination. So he's saying that these modes of development necessitate subordination, essentially, authority mm -hmm. in that sense. And he even does like a counterclaim right after in the block quote. He says, I counter the most rabid anti-authoritarians with these arguments. And he said, oh, that's true, except here it's not a question of authority, but of a commission. It's not an the anarchists are saying, like, it's not authority that's violence being wielded, but it's commission, it's power being given in, in the sense. But Lennon and Engels both are saying that that's the same shit. Can, they can we just change the name? He says, these people imagine they can change a thing by just by changing its name. You know, it's like we're still talking about the same kind of coercive power. It's just that maybe anarchists have an image of more of a mutually shared power, mm -hmm. whereas I do think communists have that same sense of mutually shared power, as in the means of production are owned by the community, by the people, mm -hmm. by the workers. It's just in different words, so to speak. Yeah, and in that big block quote that he gives from Engels, there was a part directly from Engels that I liked a lot in response to that, because he says, but the anti-authoritarians demand that the political state should be abolished at once, even before the social conditions which brought it into being have been abolished. Mm. And I think that that's a really important reprobate of anarchism. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but if we just abolish the state and move forward, we haven't done anything to change the material conditions that created the state in the first place. Yeah. And so the likelihood that it's going to rear up again, I think, is pretty high. I would agree with Ingalls there. Yeah. Yeah. Even to go back to what we were saying earlier about the bourgeois resistance. I think that they're underestimating what the size of that resistance might be. Like I was thinking earlier, like Walmart, the Waltons have a bunker designed for when the popular revolution happens. You know, if the masses rise up, they can go to their fucking bunker. Mm -hmm. But they also would have like private militias, essentially. The bourgeois have such capital that they can pay for armies and states of their own, essentially. It's like, it's Black not- Blackwater is a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just a resistance as in they're like, oh no, don't take our money. It's like, no, man, they're going to violently fight us. Mm -hmm. I, I really like what you said about changing the material conditions. This didn't come from nothing. In fact, that's the whole definition of the state. He's saying that the state arises because of the class antagonisms. It's not a creation of us. It is something that comes of these conditions. It's birthed from that antagonism. Yeah. Yes. It must be because it is what allows the minority to control the majority in this sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was something that kind of stood out to me when he's still railing against anarchism in <laughs> chapter four. Uh, Lenin says, it's on page 318 of mine. It's right near the end of section two. Uh, he says, the anarchist idea of the abolition of the state is muddled and non-revolutionary. And he claims that that's coming from Engels. He says, it is precisely the revolution in its rise and development with its specific tasks in relation to violence, authority, power, the state, that the anarchists do not wish to see. And I've never heard anarchism as being a perceived counter-revolutionary movement before. And it really gave me pause and made me mm -hmm. think long and hard about that. Yeah, well... In chapter six, he's, he talks about the Plekhanovist corruption of these anarchist figures. He actually name drops Kropotkin in there, mm -hmm. which I was surprised by because I have no clue what he's talking about. You know, but the, I love like the internet divide is always in the Spanish Civil War. 
which I know little about. But there was a there was a divide between the anarchist group, the CNTFAI, and the Stalinist Republicans mm-hmm. that essentially led to the anarchists being crushed. And my heart kind of lies with them because that's most of the literature I've read from the anarchist side of things in the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. But I can definitely understand the idea that they are a counter-revolutionary force in that sense. You know, hopefully that doesn't step on anyone's toes. <laughs> I've made claims already at this point that I have anarchist leanings, but my reading on anarchism is relatively limited. Mm -hmm. We've got, I added some stuff onto our reading list for this podcast that leans a little bit more um, in the anarchist side, specifically sides of anarchism that I've never really explored, things like anarchist primitivism and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Because I'm curious about it. I mean, I'm not necessarily ready to be a hunter-gatherer or anything like that. I am a fucking vegan. But... uh, (laughs) Let me just crush my glasses. We both wear glasses, man. What are you talking about? No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, like, where I come from, from an anarchist perspective, is more of the Kropotkin school of Mm anarcho-communism, where I recognize things in communities in, like, from a perspective of mutual aid or something like that. And so... Again, that's all to say that I'm not well-read. I am left unread, not only in communist literature, but also in anarchist literature. And so I don't appreciate all of the shitting on anarchism that Lenin does necessarily, but I I also, I don't have a lot of formal education to back up or repudiate anything that he's saying necessarily. I really like in Conquest of Bread, he says that, you know, anarchism begets communism, communism begets anarchism. Mm-hmm. And I think that that fundamentally is is my connector between anarchism and communism in my mind, is that they are, in the end of the day, the same, the same thing that we're looking for. Yeah. And even to go back to the text here, but he says, you know, when they're talking about a central government, right? For me, it's on page 72. In section four like a couple pages before, but he says, this idea of centralism does not preclude such broad local self-government as would combine the voluntary defense of unity of the state by all communes and districts and the complete elimination of bureaucratic practices and all ordering from above. So what I took that to say is that even if we're talking about a central government, we're not, we're still talking about like this local self-government. We're still talking about what is ostensibly like, not mutual aid, but I think that communal sharing of resources and production. Mm -hmm. And you know, they, they do a little word mincing here when it's like equal division, equal distribution. He's talking about like, are we giving each person just like the same amount of things? You know, I think that in the sense they are talking about the same thing where it's like we can still have a local self-government, like we can't have local self-management in that sense and still adhere to this central government. I'm going back to what Mark says about winning the battle of democracy. You know, it's like there is an ongoing battle and we're going to have to take these steps in order to win because that winning will be putting in place these systems that are ultimately being informed by democracy and also informing democracy. I like the way he says that a lot of people are talking, when they are referring to communism, they're referring to the highest phase of communism, Mm -hmm. right? It's like you're missing all of the stuff in between. Yeah, I am for that, but here's all of these transitionary periods in between. You know, some of those will include the state. Some of those will include bourgeois law. Like, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but I love when he says, like, we cannot expect a society to... uh, I wrote it down. Oh... I definitely have some stuff in there about that as well, because I think that that transitional period is so vital. Let's presume that the revolution does 
happen, right? There is an uprising of the workers of the world, mm. and we revolt, and we seize the means of production. You know, the guillotines come out, all the good stuff. So then what, yeah. right? The question is, well, what happens? It's not like overnight everyone is going to know what to do or understand what the next step is, which is why that transitional stage, you know, the first stage of communism being some form of socialism, makes sense for people to find a way to establish a new way of life, a new like form of just what it means to do with yourself every day, how you are contributing to uh, society, how you are, how your labor is contributing to society, how you're being paid for that labor, all that sort of stuff, until the point that those things become self-evident and yep. become the norm. And then, you know, the next transitional phase will, will occur as it is gradually withering away. Yeah, I guess I guess this is a good time to move on to the withering away of the state. Did you have anything else to say about anarchism? There? We'll see if we come back yeah. to it. Well, because I think that there is a, a big part of that. You know, the, the state is withering away. I really love the way he talks about it just becoming a habit. You know, Engel says that it will take a generation to be raised in these conditions before we reach another phase, essentially, mm -hmm. because it has to be habitual. You know, the living in this society without these pressures of violence, without these pressures of subordination, that's not going to come immediately because people aren't used to that. You know, people need to be introduced to that, essentially, through generations. He says on page 79, uh, at best, the state is an is an evil inherited by the proletariat for which the like worst parts must be lopped off immediately. Like mm -hmm. we are still going to have functions in this new state that are analogous to functions in the old state. That's another quote from this same text. That transitionary period, I think, is really important. Just to talk on the same point, I love when they're saying, oh man, such a, this is on page 95. From the bourgeois point of view, it's easy to declare that such a social order is sheer utopia and to sneer at the socialists for promising everyone the right to receive from society without any control, any quantity of truffles, cars, and pianos, etc. It's like, that's exactly that kind of retort that you would get. It's like, oh, well, if we live under communism, then just give me all the caviar. You know, <laughs> I'll take it all. But like, fun fact, man, China has made it so caviar is no longer a luxury commodity. They've figured out a way to essentially farm fish eggs in a, in a way that makes it not pricey, you know, mm -hmm. available to everybody. And just to put it uh, in another perspective, man, lobster used to be something that was eaten by everybody. It was, you know, the insect, shrimps as bugs, the insects of the sea, right? Like lobster was a poor man's food and only via like, I don't know, bourgeois assimilation. Mm -hmm. Did it become like this, this noble thing, this like aristocratic meal? Where was I going with this? It's uh, yeah. Even to continue his quote. Most bourgeois savants confine themselves to sneering in this way, betraying both their ignorance and their selfish defense of capitalism. Yeah. Think bigger, man. Well, I th this is what the point I was trying to get at, and I think I moved you onto something far beyond the point that I was trying to make, was like, the reason that transitional stage is so important is in part because capitalist realism, like, lives in so many people's minds now that it would be it's difficult to imagine a world where people's material needs are met and therefore they don't need to burgle yeah. in order to survive or whatever and so i think that that transitional state is important even just on a from a philosophical perspective to get us to the point where we we are no longer fighting to survive and instead once our material needs are met then it becomes a lot easier to envision the way there can be an equity without equality in the way that we contribute to society because when your needs are met you provide to society what you are able to provide. 
nothing yeah. more, nothing less. And I think that leads straight to, you know, that quote, right? From each according to his ability, to each according to his need, mm-hmm. which is a powerful, powerful quote. I mean, yeah. that that's like the end goal, you know? It's, it, it, there. I saw this the other day, in 1987, there was a study of about a thousand people and about half of them thought that that phrase came from the U.S. Constitution. Like, you, it's, it's such a obvious thing that you'd think that that kind of right is already enshrined to us in this free society, quote-unquote, that we live in. But we're going to have to really work for that. Lenin talks about not just the state withering away, not just democracy withering away, but, like, the excesses of man also withering away. Mm-hmm. Will you want unlimited caviar if you know you can go down to the store any day and get caviar? Right. Like if it wasn't so scarce, if it wasn't scarcity driven by the market, mm-hmm. would it still be so desired by you? I don't know. Yeah. I liked when he talked about the Federal Republic. That's you know. what I, that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. So he, he has this quote here where he says he regarded the he's talking about angles now. He says angles like Marx insisted on democratic centralism on one indivisible republic. And then the quote He regarded the Federal Republic either as an exception and a hindrance to development or as a transitional form from a monarchy to a centralized republic as a step forward under certain special conditions. Mm. And in these special conditions, the national question comes to the front. Yes. Here's where my autistic special interest comes into play, because the glorious nation of Yugoslavia was a federal republic because the national question was at the forefront of their mind. The reason that Yugoslavia was set up as a a federal republic is because it was a state created of six different ethnicities, Mm -hmm. right? And rather than to put one ethnicity in charge, which they believed, rightfully so, would spark these, like, ethnic divides, Mm -hmm. they gave everybody essentially autonomy. And Part of the Kosovarian issue was that Kosovo had a high percentage. There were more ethnic Albanians living in Kosovo than in Albania. And they were worried that creating another state would would cause some kind of clash there. But the reason they had set it up in that first place is because they recognized the right of national sovereignty to all of these different peoples. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that as time went along, those ethnic divides started to decrease, even though these were ostensibly like, you know, the Bosnian Republic was mostly Bosniaks, right? But there were also Serbs and Croats that lived in there. Mm -hmm. Those ethnic lines were starting to disappear. Everybody was blending together. It's like that joke where it's like, just everybody fuck until you're tan. Um, (laughs) I've never heard that joke. I I think it's Russell Brand or somebody. Oh, God. Jesus. Somebody where he's like, we just need everyone to fuck until they're a darker shade of beige. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the same idea. It's like this is set up initially in a way that gives everybody self-determination, but ultimately the idea is that these lines would be removed. And I don't know for sure, but I think that the USSR was set up much the same way. You know, the Russian Federal Republic was only one of many Soviet republics in the USSR Mm -hmm. because of that idea of national determination. Yeah, so that, that part about the Federal Republic really spoke to me because I got really into my bag about Yugoslavia last year. I'm sure we'll come back to Yugoslavia at some point. Here's some stuff that Engels says, and then Lenin's response to Engels with regard to the national question, this idea of the federal republic or a centralized government. Engels proposes the following wording for the clause in the program on self-government. And this is a direct quote. It says, complete self-government for the provinces, districts, and communities through officials elected by universal suffrage, the abolition of all local and provincial authorities appointed by the state. Hmm. Lenin goes on. 
to say, it is extremely important to note that Angles, armed with facts, armed with facts, armed with facts. disproves by a precise example the prejudice that is very widespread, particularly among petty bourgeois Democrats, that a federal republic necessarily means a greater amount of freedom than a centralized republic. This is not true. In other words, the greatest amount of local, provincial, and other freedom known in history was granted by a centralized and not by a federal republic. Yes. One thing I really appreciate is that he talks about these material examples. Yep. You know, he says, like, a federal republic works in these places. It doesn't work in these places. To imagine the kind of republic that would happen in Switzerland, in Germany, would be complete chaos. And I think that that's something that... I, like we're Americans, so we have a pretty unique situation. But I think that any communist has to kind of reckon with what their local conditions are in that sense. Maybe a federal republic is, you know, necessary as a transition, but ultimately the goal is still the same. Like we're still trying to do one socialism. I recognize also this point, and I agree with this point, that we think of a centralized state as somehow being inherently totalitarian mm -hmm. or somehow inhibiting freedom, where it is, in fact, a more free situation in this implementation. Yeah, I think that the, the key thing is that he's saying that these appointments aren't going to come from one central place in the state, you know, like... Yeah. The ideas aren't going to come from one central location outwards. You're still going to have local self-government in the sense that your representatives are elected via universal suffrage. Mm -hmm. You know, these appointments aren't coming from on high. They're still elected via a democratic process. Um, one thing I do want to say is that really sparked a lot of joy in my heart to hear Lenin say exactly what I had stated in a previous episode. Let me just pull up the quote, but... On page 89 for me, he says, Only in communist society, when the resistance of the capitalists has disappeared, when there are no classes between the members of society as regard to their relations to the social means of production, only then the state ceases to exist. It becomes possible to speak of freedom. Only then will a truly complete democracy become possible and be realized. A democracy without any exceptions whatever. And only then will democracy begin to wither away owing to the simple fact that freed from capitalist slavery and the untold horrors, savagery, absurdities, and infamies of capitalist exploitation, people will gradually become accustomed to observing the elementary rules of social intercourse that have been known for centuries and repeated for thousands of years in all copybook maxims. They will become accustomed to observing them without force, without coercion, without subordination, without the special apparatus for coercion called the state. Just to go back to, these are the thoughts that you had when you're five it's <laughs> yeah. like yeah. these are literally the kind of things that are taught to you as a child that have been printed countless times we already espouse these ideals as a society but only once the all of the exploitation coercion and exploitative rule has been abolished will people actually start to live by those norms that really spoke to me yeah, he has another bit. I, I don't know exactly where you're at in the reading, but he has another bit when he's talking about the withering away of the state that I wrote in the margin. I just wrote the word social contract. It reminded me a lot of John Locke's philosophy around the social contract. Mm -hmm. And I think that that uh, speaks to what you're saying here. He said, only habit can and undoubtedly will have such an effect, for we see around us millions of times how readily people become accustomed to observing the necessary rules of social life if there is no exploitation, if there is nothing that causes indignation, that calls forth protest and revolt, and has to be suppressed. So what I think is interesting about that is John Locke was a big 
influence on the founding fathers and in the writing of the Constitution. And this idea of the social contract was an important part, supposedly, of their ideology with forming the colonies. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting is that this Locke's position on the social contract is effectively an ethical one, where you behave in a way toward others because you expect a certain type of behavior toward you. It's the golden rule. But what is ironic is that it is only through the coercive mechanisms of the state that we do have this supposed rule that is stopping us from behaving a certain type of way in the United States. And so I think it's really funny that, like, back to that point about, like, well, what's to stop me from breaking into your house and stealing all your stuff, you shouldn't. That's what should stop you. Is that, that would it, be bad. Yeah, it's an ethical It's an ethical point. And if your material conditions are met so you, that is, you're no longer in a position of desperation where that is the only way you're, you can survive, you especially shouldn't. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I just think it's funny that we think of the social contract as somehow being a part of democratic rule, where really it's a much more communist kind of ideology, this idea of participating equally in in a society, because that's what you expect other people to do, so that's what you do. Yeah, I mean, to go back to the Founding Fathers, you know, by the people, for the people, of the people, that is an ideal. That is really something that we should strive for. Yeah, that would be dope. Yeah. It's just that it's been, like, subverted by capital, you know? Yeah. And, And when they talk about the withering way of democracy, I mean, Lenin talks about that continuously. The way that democracy is always hemmed by the narrow limits set by capitalist exploitation. Ooh, that's that's a banger line. Yeah. Yeah, it says, in capitalist society, providing it develops under the most favorable conditions, yep. we have a more or less a complete democracy in the democratic republic, but this democracy is always hemmed in by the narrow limits set by capitalist exploitation and consequently always remain in, re- in effect a democracy for the minority. I love later on, he says, freedom for in capitalist society always remains about the same as it was in ancient Greek republics. Freedom, freedom for, the, for slave the slave owners. owners. Yeah, yeah. That, I wrote that down in my notes because it was really striking. Wage slavery has its own connotations but like it is in the end of the day slavery if we're going back to that economic principle of voluntary mutually beneficial transactions that's what keeps the market going on the ideal level if your option is to work on the plantation or to die of starvation then it's not an option yep and that's slavery at the end of the day yeah that's coercion yeah yeah so it's much the same. I hate to sound like so frothing and angry, but like uh, the capitalists are slave owners in that sense. You know? 100%. They have the control. No matter how much kente cloth Nancy Pelosi wears on the <laughs> fucking... That really is still in my mind, I'm sorry to say. <clears throat> Happy Black History Month, everybody. Did you see the quote where she told the protesters to go back go to back China? Go back to China! Ah! Yes. <laughs> I had that exact same quote. It's worded a little differently about democracy in my text, highlighted as well. He says a couple of other things about democracy that I'd like to highlight here. Yeah. And I think he comes back to the dictatorship of the proletariat in response to that. First, I'm going to go back a little bit to the end of chapter four, where Lenin writes about democracy. He says, no, democracy is not identical with the subordination of the minority to the majority. Democracy is a state which recognizes the subordination of the minority to the majority, i.e. an organization for the systematic use of violence mm. by one class against the other by one section of the population against another. And then later in chapter five, he writes, no development towards communism proceeds through the dictatorship of the proletariat. It cannot do otherwise, for the resistance of the capitalist exploiters cannot be broken by anyone else or in any other way. 
Yeah. That just speaks to me as like we're talking about the kind of concrete conditions, concrete steps that need to be taken. Like he's not speaking in the abstract here. Yeah. He's actually laying a foundational framework that I think is true. If we're talking about democracy and seeing this idea of democracy in the West, at least as being synonymous with the suppression of the majority by the minority, freedom for the slave owners, like he says, then the only thing that can stand against that is for the majority to bandy up and revolt against the minority. Yeah. And the suppression of that minority is still, I would, I would add, not a suppression of democracy. Right. Because democracy, like you mentioned earlier before, is, by its very nature, some form of coercive yeah. suppression of the majority against the minority. Yeah. I mean, our, I think our perceptions of democracy are really tinged by America as well. Because oh, yeah. we think of it as like a first-past-the-post ideal. You know, like, oh, the 51% is uh, suddenly holding down the 49%. But it's not like that. Yeah. You know, even if it seems that way in America just because of our lovely two-party system. Can I add one more thing Please. about democracy here? This is right after the quote about the resistance of the capitalist exploiters, where he's calling back to the dictatorship of the proletariat. He says, but the dictatorship of the proletariat, i.e. the organization of the vanguard of the oppressed as the ruling class for the purpose of crushing the oppressors, cannot result merely in an expansion of democracy simultaneously with an immense expansion of democracy, which for the first time becomes democracy for the poor, democracy for the people and not democracy for the rich, the dictatorship of the proletariat imposes a series of restrictions on the freedom of the oppressors, the exploiters, the capitalists. We must crush them in order to free humanity from wage slavery. Their resistance must be broken by force. I think that there's a gut check like response to a lot of what Lenin has to say for a lot of people, maybe for anarchists specifically, where they're like, that sounds like totalitarianism, bro. But you brought up a, something in the last episode when we were talking about the gulags. I think I cut all that out. Yeah, about the gulags. <laughs> but there is a point where it's like, what do you do with somebody who's What going are you to... supposed to do yeah. with a minority that is working against the interests of the majority, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what response is there other than some form of coercive force? Yeah, what do you do with those people that have no desire other than to obliterate what you're creating? Those people will exist. What do you do with them? It is a really tough question. Because at the end of the day, it is some form of subordination. It is some form of violence. I think the easy answer is that you favor the majority. You favor, like he says, democracy under the dictatorship of the proletariat will be, for the first time, democracy for the poor. And obviously, then, we are experiencing a higher form of freedom in that case. There are going to be people that resist that. Yeah. Well, I, this is a little bit of an idealist thing from Lenin, but I really like when he says... Once that happens, like that resistance will be there, but it will not be possible for that resistance to be concentrated because it will be impossible for the means of production to be seized by a private force. He's saying like, we will have created an environment where you cannot have that kind of resistance, you know? And if we're talking about like an ideal revolution where the capitalists are expropriated, which by the way, sounds nice, but is a horribly violent word, okay, to expropriate somebody, that's fucked up. Um, what will they have left with to resist us? That sounded like some real Red Terror shit. <laughs> when I was reading up about Lenin, too, I saw a lot about, like, the Red Terror, which I have no knowledge of, but he's following on his own ideals. He's doing exactly what he said he would. It's like, we have seized the power, now we must, we, we must suppress the resistance, mm -hmm. you know? And the rest of the world's like, you're doing a Red Fascism, bro! 
Yeah. What do you do with those people? That is a tricky one. So Lenin quotes Engels and then is talking a little bit about religion in the communist uh, state. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels oxymoronic to yeah. say it, but in a post-revolution communist world. And he says, Engels deliberately emphasized the words in relation to the state as a straight thrust at the heart of German opportunism. Another boxing metaphor, might I add. Is a, it? A straight thrust. Okay. Like he's throwing a punch, dude. <laughs> as a straight thrust at the heart of German opportunism, which had declared religion to be a private matter in relation to the party, thus degrading the party of the revolutionary proletariat to the level of the most vulgar, free-thinking Philistinism, which is prepared to allow a non-denominational status, but which renounces the party struggle against the religious opium, which stupefies the people. Right. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the opiate of the masses idea that Marx has. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like mincing words to me, where he's saying that we are saying that religion is a personal and private matter, but not in relation to the work of the party. Mm -hmm. If the goal is to obliterate the state, move on to this full-face communism, then religion will become superfluous in that sense. So to delegate it to just personal choice, he's saying is like, oh, just do what you want. It's free love. Like, that's kind of the message I'm getting from Lenin there. Yeah, I read that as very much (laughs) my interpretation of that, again, as an atheist, so I'm coming at this with my own baggage, Mm -hmm. but my interpretation of it was like, put the party over your God, do what the party needs, and then you can fiddle around with your God if you need to after that. Yeah, yeah. In the same way, he talks about the family and principles where he said that it will just become a private matter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing. It's like, that's great. Do what you need, but also we're doing communism over here. (laughs) We're doing a communism. Don't mind us. Since we were kind of talking about what do you do with the resistance, like what are you supposed to do to people to resist? He does have something here that raised a question to me about vigilantism, I guess. Okay, so this is like the final two paragraphs of part two where he says, finally, only communism makes the state absolutely unnecessary for there is no one to be suppressed. Mm -hmm. No one in the sense of a class. He goes to say, though, we are not utopians and we do not in the least deny the possibility and inevitability of excesses on the part of individual persons or the need to suppress such excesses. But in the first place, no special machine, no special apparatus of repression is needed for this. This will be done by the armed people itself as simply and as readily as any crowd of civilized people, even in modern society, parts two people who are fighting or interferes to prevent a woman from being assaulted. Yeah, I made a little reference to that earlier. Yeah, he goes on to add also, and secondly, we know that the fundamental social cause of excesses which consist in violation and violating the rules of social life is the exploitation of the masses, their wants, and their poverty. With the removal of this chief cause, excesses will inevitably begin to wither away, you know, much like the state. While I have a tendency to generally agree with that sentiment, I do think, even though he says we are not utopians, it raises the question of, like, what are you supposed to do with vigilantism then? Mm -hmm. I'm imagining, again, coming from this space of living in the United States right now, where there are a lot of gun-toting good old boys who would feel as though, once they had license, they are now going to be the arbiters of all morality and behavior. Mm -hmm. Like... What are you supposed to do to avoid that becoming a real fucking problem? Yeah, that is a tough one. And it goes back to what we talked about on the last episode, I think, where you can't have it. I don't think it's possible to have a fully armed population. Yeah. So what's to stop those people from essentially making themselves into 
deputizing themselves right. as like the fucking sheriff. Yeah, I and you know I'm sure that they would say like create the conditions where that's not a possibility. But if we're talking about a transitional phase, what's to prevent that? You know, I think that yep. is something that definitely has to be reckoned with. And I guess that it has to do with I guess the party line is one thing which I'm not super comfortable with. But yeah. the party line, and then also like a mass education of the people, you know, they have to have everyone into one school of thought, the thought that is step in and stop a scuffle. I'm not sure. It, it, I do agree with you that it, it feels a little utopian in that sense, where he's just like, yeah, the people will just sort it out. Yeah, well, and I, again, my limited historical understanding in a post-Lenin USSR, I know what Stalin's response was. Yeah, <laughs> and, the bullet. Uh, yeah, I'm not exactly uh, comfortable with that either. But I do generally agree with the second part of it, where he says, meet the material conditions, no longer have an exploitation of the masses, and then you won't need to deal with that sort of stuff so much because those sorts of situations won't arise any longer. When I talk to students about communism, you know, oftentimes they, they will ask questions about crime, or, or I'll just talk to them about prison abolition. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. And I say like, well, if you meet the material conditions of people, you're going to eliminate most crime. Crime is a symptom of a larger problem. It's not the problem itself. Right. You solve the problem, crime goes away. There will still be crimes of passion because we are fallible creatures. So that's where we're going to have to figure out how to deal with those sorts of things. But generally speaking, if you meet the conditions of people's lives, you, that they need to, to live a, a satisfactory life, then you're going to do away with a lot of the kind of issues where that would become a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I mean, yes, we are always going to be fallible, but I do, I do think that I agree with Lennon here when he's talking about the withering away of individual excesses as well. And I guess, I mean, it kind of, it makes me think of old U.S. propaganda where it's like everybody's the same in the USSR. They're all in the same gray coat, smoking the same brand of cigarette outside in the same bread line. As they say from their same cubicle walls. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, I can't buy six different kinds of Lay's, dude. What will <laughs> I do with my life? No, um... I can understand where that sense comes from. If we're talking about, it's not a flattening of society. Like it's, we're talking about the resolution of these conflicts in society that generate societal issues that make these problems happen. And I don't think, I don't, I don't know anymore, man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do agree with your sentiment that having an armed population is not going to be as easy as Lenin seems to think that it will be. Certainly not to have one that is organized. Maybe in any they're sort just of armed way. with knowledge. <laughs> if we arm them all with our theory, then they can debate their way out of the problem. They're <laughs> just a nation of debate bros. Dude, no, but no country would try to tussle with us. We'd just be too annoying about it. Prove me wrong. Yeah, try me, bro. When it talks about the remnants of the old surviving in the new, that confronts us in all life. That kind of goes back to even the anarchist idea, the anarchist versus communism debate, where he's saying, abolish the state, obliterate the state. These anarchists have an idea that we're just going to destroy the state and then not know what to replace it with. But I think that two points that Lenin makes is that one, the state we currently live in is not state socialism. He makes it really clear that state capitalism is still capitalism in the end of the day yeah no matter how they do the metrics or how they monopolize or whatever that's still capitalism so it's still exploitation but on top of that 
He says also that we are confronted by remnants of the old surviving in the new all the time. The state shouldn't surprise us, especially if we know that we're transitioning from one point to that higher phase of communism. And that's something that I just, it was a little bit reassuring. You know, it's like, yeah, we will still see parts of the old state. Like, I think that there is an idea that when we obliterate this capitalist hellscape, there will be something different, like completely different, put into its place. But in reality, the society that we're envisioning is not so far off of the society we have today. It's just that the conditions that create these issues will be removed forcibly mm -hmm. by the people. And that's reassuring to me because, one, it says that we're closer to communism than we think. Even I'm not talking about the higher phase of communism, but I think we're closer to a socialist state than we believe. And actually, I'm sure you saw it, that second thought video about the People's Republic of Walmart. Yeah, yeah. That video, that this part made me think about that because the central planning systems that we need are already essentially in place. Like, and not, I'm not saying that Walmart is a topic or anything, <laughs> but like, you know, there is a level of subordination that happens there naturally just because of the chain of supply. I still think, I mean, there's obviously like managers and that's a whole fucking its own thing. But I'm just thinking about, you know, what Lenin's saying about we are still going to have parts of the old state in the new state. There are functions of the new state that are analogous with functions of the old state. There's going to be some transitional stage. There needs to be some sort of transitional stage where, you know, there's a Walmart fucking every three miles or yep. whatever the fuck all across the nation. So it would make sense for us, logically, if we overthrow the government or whatever, we, we start the new state to use Walmart and its distribution si yeah. situation to get goods to all of the people. That doesn't mean that it's going to still operate under the same conditions of exploitation that have created the Waltons, you yeah. know what I mean? But it is a mechanism that can be used by the people in a, in a meaningful way until some sort of new infrastructure is built under a centralized vision. Fucking hate Walmart. <laughs> I was <laughs> just thinking about that. Walmart fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so with the withering away of the state, maybe to close, Marx says... Lenin quotes Marx saying, nevertheless, the different states of the different civilized countries, in spite of their own varied diversity of form, all have this in common, that they are based on modern bourgeois society. But Lenin says, after having ridiculed that, quote, the first fact that has been established with complete exactitude by the whole theory of development by science as a whole, as a fact which the utopians forget, and which is forgotten by present-day opportunists who are afraid of the socialist revolution, is that historically there must undoubtedly be a special stage or epoch of transition from capitalism to communism. There has to be some sort of transitional state where the former vestiges of the state will wither away in mm. time. But that transitional state is a necessary state. And it's also to say that it's like, even if it has the vestiges of the old state in it, it's not the old state. Yeah. The, the conditions of the violence are different. You know, it's no longer the minority suppressing the majority, but the majority suppressing the minority. And... I think that's totally righteous. Do you want to talk about overcoming democracy now? I do feel like we've talked about withering away of the state quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, we did mention, you know, what it means for democracy to wither away, but I think that this was probably the most difficult part uh, of this book for me to digest besides the 
sixth chapter, which is mostly him just dunking on contemporaries. From the perspective of having difficulty, like, accepting what Lennon was saying? Yes, accepting, but I also am not exactly clear... I don't know. It's something about the wording of overcoming democracy, like democracy withering away, makes me always wonder, like, what's what's next? Mm-hmm. You know, what comes after? But I guess to answer my own question, he's saying, like, we will have a more complete democracy in place. It's not that democracy is going away. So it's odd to talk for him to talk about it withering away in that sense. Yeah, and I think where my confusion was, or I don't know, maybe it's a misinterpretation of Lenin, but what I'm hearing, what I when I see the word democracy, I'm thinking philosophically about what democracy is supposed to represent. Mm-hmm. Lenin seems very much to be talking about democracy as a state apparatus that is a realist state, not like what democracy, yeah. but instead he's he's talking about actual quote unquote democracy yeah. that exists, like present day democracy. Yeah. Okay. And so that's that's how I became more comfortable with all this rhetoric around like overcoming or overthrowing democracy. Mm-hmm. Because he's still, at that time, talking about suffrage, talking about universal suffrage as an integral part of the state after democracy is overthrown. And he's he uses a lot of examples to talk about how there will actually be more freedom and more opportunity for people to participate than there is under democracy, mm-hmm. which I think is made me feel more comfortable with it. Yeah, that's totally fair. I think I was just having trouble understanding exactly where he was coming from. I think I hadn't made that that connection about like he's just talking about present-day democracies well so like one example in chapter four near this the end of section five he gives this long ass angles block quote but right before it he says fully consistent democracy is impossible under capitalism and under socialism all democracy withers away and he goes on to say taken separately no sort of democracy will bring socialism, but in actual life, democracy will never be taken separately. It will be taken together with other things. It will exert its influence on economics, will simulate its reformation, and in its turn, it will be influenced by economic development and so on. Such are the dialectics of living history. Yeah. Which I think you maybe referenced that already. Before. I had, yeah, I had that part specifically I was I had mentioned earlier because it it made me feel more confident in my own dialectical thinking. It's like, oh, yes, it's, I don't want to be so buzzwordy, but like, you know, the antithesis and the thesis and Mm -hmm. the synthesis, you know, it's like these are two forces that are building upon each other and what comes out of the other end is something different. Yeah, and he gives this long-ass angles quote. Which is a banger, by the way. I did, I wrote the whole thing bangs in my notes. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. (laughs) Well, and then Lenin's response to it he, he gives two points, and the first the first point is the one that stands out to me. He says, first, the fact that Engels said that in a democratic republic, quote, no less than in a monarchy, the state remains a machine for the oppression of one class by another does not signify that the form of oppression is a matter of indifference to the proletariat, as some anarchists mm-hmm. teach. A wider, freer, and more open form of the class struggle and of class oppression greatly assists the proletariat in its struggle for the abolition of all classes. Yeah, I think I dipped into this section when we were talking about the withering away of democracy of the state earlier. Okay, because this is what I was talking about when he's saying like a democratic republic is the is more allowing than other forms, you know. And he says that a lot throughout this. He goes back to when he's talking about how. There will have to be a generation raised in these consequences. He's saying here in the block quote, the Ingalls block quote, mm-hmm. that the idea of the state is like this heavenly idea. It's the kingdom of God on kingdom earth, God translated on earth. into philosophical terms. 
you know, but in reality, the state is nothing. Yeah, th this is what I quoted earlier. In, no in reality, the state is nothing but a machine for the oppression of one class by another, and at best, it is in an evil inherited by the proletariat after its victorious struggle, whose worst sides the victorious proletariat will have to lop off as speedily as possible. Let's do this. Let's talk about with the overcoming democracy. I think that there are two things that really stood out to me mm. in, near the latter section of the book when he's talking about overcoming democracy. No, one is he, he makes this stink about the difference between formal equality and real equality, which I think is tied up in this conversation around democracy. Mm -hmm. Because he writes, but democracy means only formal equality. As soon as equality is obtained for all members of society in relation to the ownership of the means of production, that is, equality of labor, inequality of wages, humanity will inevitably be confronted with the question of going beyond formal equality to real equality, i.e. to applying the rule from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. By what stages, by what practical measures humanity will proceed to this higher aim? We do not and cannot know. So I think what he's doing here is he's really drawing a distinction between equality and equity mm. and acknowledging that democracy allows only for equality, where everyone has the an equal expectation and is subordinated by the same form of rule, so to speak. That's a weird way to say that. But, <laughs> but like everyone has the same expectation and you are judged based on that expectation, that yeah. kind of formal equality, while real equality... I believe he's talking about equity, mm -hmm. like participating in the way that you are able to and perhaps most strongly needed, you know what yeah. I mean? And I think that that is a much more democratic idea than some sort of like carte blanche blanket expectation upon all people. Yeah, and I think that this kind of goes into what you were talking about, about like the equality of right. He says that in here, it's like everyone has the right to do these things, but only some people have the means to do them. Yeah. And I think that that's the same distinction that you're making, where it's like, we're not just talking about equality, where everyone can get what they need. It's a matter of that everyone will get what they need. Such a degree of a democracy implies overstepping the boundaries of bourgeois society and beginning its socialist reorganization. Like, it's, we're still talking about the transitionary period, really. Mm -hmm. But then the, uh, the other part that really stood out to me, like, okay, I had mentioned before, or we mentioned in the last episode, he makes reference to this reversion to a, a quote, more primitive democracy. Yeah. And we had questions about what that even meant. We didn't, he didn't outline or define it at that time. And I think that that was one of the big questions that we had in the earlier chapters of the text. I was like, what does that even mean? And mm -hmm. I think we came up with our version of what we thought that meant at the time. But he does actually finally get to something of a definition of it right before he starts shitting on Kotsky again. Oh, yeah. Or no, right after he's shitting on Kotsky. This is like very near the end of uh, chapter six. He finally gives us a sort of definition of what he means when he says primitive democracy. Because he, he writes, as a matter of fact, the trade unions did not develop in absolute freedom but in absolute capitalist slavery, under which a number of concessions to the prevailing evil, violence, falsehood, exclusion of the poor from the affairs of the higher administration, cannot be avoided. Under socialism, much of the, quote, primitive democracy will inevitably be revived, since for the first time in the history of civilized society, the mass of the population will rise to independent participation not only in voting and elections, but also in the everyday administration of affairs. And I think that this is his way of giving us a definition of what he means when he says primitive democracy. 
I think that's what he longs for under communism, this more primitive democracy. So when he's talking about overthrowing democracy, what he's really talking about is overthrowing the state apparatus that subordinates or withholds freedom from people, that limits the vote. Because he even talks in here about the West and the, uh, he mentions at one point that like women in the West don't have the right to vote, yet we still think of that as suffrage being universal there. Yeah, just to speak on that for a second, I love in uh, earlier in in chapter five where he's saying, he's talking about the Social Democratic Party in Germany and he says, what's the largest proportion of politically conscious and active wage slaves that have so far been recorded in capitalist society? So like, what's the high watermark for our current democracy? And he says, one million members of the Social Democratic Party out of 15 million wage workers, three million organized in trade unions out of 15 million. So that's like just a really concrete example is like even in our most expanded democracy even in our most free quote-unquote society you still have literally a fraction i mean one fifteenth or one fifth of the the workers are even in a position where they could obtain some kind of consciousness yeah and it's even in at the end of chapter five where he says uh, to continue that thought he says the more complete democracy becomes the nearer the moment approaches when it becomes unnecessary Mm. The more complete democracy becomes, the nearer the moment approaches when it becomes unnecessary. I interpret that to mean the more participatory a true democracy becomes, like the more opportunity every individual has to participate, the less necessary it is to have any sort of state apparatus that makes that the reality. That's logical to me. Again, it's hard for me to, to imagine from a capitalist realist perspective what that would actually really look or feel like, because I feel very much my understanding of voting is an exercise in futility. And so it's hard for me to see it as something, I don't know, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around that. It's an interesting idea. I'm I'm just trying to think about it now. It's like if everybody were to be knowledgeable and vote on an issue and then act in the way that their vote predicted, I guess, like what, how would that work out? One thing I wanted to talk about is, is bureaucratization, because he does speak a little bit in chapter six about bureaucracy. And I think that that's, especially if we're going to delve into the histories of actually existing socialism, that's going to be a huge point. How did these governments avoid bureaucratization? And maybe how did they not so much avoid bureaucratization? Because, I mean, just to give a blanket definition, Lenin says here, this alone is the reason why the functionaries of our political organizations are corrupted, or rather tend to be corrupted by conditions of capitalism and betray a tendency to become bureaucrats, i.e., Privileged persons divorced from the people and standing above the people. So I know that ultimately, if we're talking about a transitionary period, the idea is for the state to wither away. But in the meantime, if we're going to have these people, these ministers and officials in places of power, how do we prevent them from becoming above the people? How do Mm -hmm. we prevent that class from becoming above the people? One thing Lenin says in here is that kind of mass participation that we were just talking about when it comes to democracy. And I think those two things do go hand in hand. But that's also a tricky tightrope to walk because not only do you need to diminish the functions of the state to the point where anybody can do them, you also need to raise the people to the point where they can perform those duties of the state to the point where anyone can do them. I mean, that's that's Lenin's ideal here is that any person would and will do these administrative tasks Mm -hmm. they're no longer tasks of exerting power but now just tasks of administration data tracking and metrics and that kind of thing how do we expect that to happen yeah that's a fair question i think we think of those things as 
being reliant on education and specialization to a point where there is a gateway to entrance, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's hard for me to think of it outside of the lens of Western United States politics or whatever, but I think there's something valuable in the idea of believing that any random person on the street can and perhaps should be making decisions at that level of bureaucracy, you mm -hmm. know, because they would bring with it an experience that's not completely uh, separated from like yeah. the experience of the average person, which is what happens now when you have like a ruling class of oligarchs that make all of those decisions. But at the same time, like, am I going to ask some random person on the street a question about like trade routes? You know what I mean? Like I'm having trouble thinking of a way that we could streamline the process of running the mechanisms of the state to a point where anyone could do them effectively. Mm -hmm. But once you create a situation where there is some sort of distinction among people like that, then you're creating a corruptible class. Yeah. Maybe this is a window into the history of things, but he says here, just to follow up, even that is the essence of bureaucracy. And until the capitalists have been expropriated and the bourgeoisie overthrown, even proletarian functionaries will inevitably be bureaucratized to a certain extent. And it makes me think of the Soviet Union because that was like the that's the big thing is that they were corrupt bureaucrats, mm -hmm. right? Like that's the popular conception of the Soviet Union is that it's like these are all cronies and the Politburo is it's like political backstabbing and whatnot. Yeah. I think that's the fear in my mind, you know? How can we in our transition you know, I know we're jumping the gun on the revolution here, but like, say the revolution happens, like, how do we put these systems into place and prevent those things from happening? We have history, many, many histories to show us that this will happen. You know, even the most successful, quote unquote, socialist revolutionaries are running into those same issues. Like the Soviet Union, obviously, has been obliterated, even though that's under the boot of capitalism anyway. Yeah. Same with China. We're going to have to get into that at some point, not anytime soon, I think. But like the transition from Mao to, to Ding is crazy. And it's also really pains me to look at China today in the same way, because I want to believe that they are, they still have those socialist ideals, mm -hmm. but it's really tough. You know, I mean, same with Vietnam, like Laos, Laos is still communist, Vietnam is still communist in name at least, mm -hmm. right? Has their historical progression come because of that kind of bureaucratization that Lenin is talking about here? Are there still elements in those countries today that are what we are looking for when we're talking about a society that is transitioning? Can you say that these actually existing socialisms are still in the transitionary stage to communism anymore? That's a question that's always on my mind, and it's just something that this passage really made me think about because he's saying that, like, even if we have these lofty ideals in mind when we do a revolution, when we put these transitionary systems into place, there are still things that can occur. There are still resistances against us. There are things that we must deal with and overcome, even outside of... I mean, this is still in the lens of, you know, the capitalists and the bourgeoisie, but there are still troubles that have to be dealt with. All right, well, let's wrap this thing up with some big picture questions. Was this book worth reading? I think absolutely. You know, I just to be completely frank, this is the first bit of Lenin I have ever read. And um, I'm kind of kicking myself that that's the case. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's a maybe it's a uh, it's like speaks on turning the key or getting started. But like, 
I would never have done this without this space. Yeah, I don't know that I would have either. Yeah. Uh, I would agree that this is very much worth reading, and I think the only Lenin that I've read, I've read a little bit of on imperialism, but I didn't finish it. <laughs> and what I think is difficult about a text like this is that I think it's hard to read in isolation. Yeah. I think what this exercise has taught me is that there were still a lot of this book that I didn't understand, and I think, obviously, listening back to this episode and the last one, I'm sure people will find things that I'm misinterpreting or or I, I took in a way that is against something that Lenin articulated elsewhere or something like that. But if I was reading this all by myself, yeah. just sitting in a dark room all by myself reading communism, I don't think any of that would ever become apparent. I think part of the exercise of reading it together is to like dig a little deeper into it, find a deeper understanding of the text and, and learn a little bit more from it. So I think 100% this was worthwhile to read. Yeah, I would just say the other thing that I think it's other than from an uh, an educational perspective, it's also a pretty engaging read. I think to read something that was obviously written on the precipice of real revolution, you pick that up. Yeah. You feel he is speaking with great conviction and he's also not a fucking phony. He puts his money where his mouth is. Yeah. Oh, my God. They, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Again. Chapter seven is literally cut off by the fact that the revolution happens. Yeah. So that's amazing. And I also think that even if you have a tinge of these leanings, like reading this stuff will make you more confident. I didn't have the words and the vocabulary to talk about a lot of these things, even if I had already believed in them. For a long time now, the, the question of the state has always been on my mind because I have a degree in economics and thus I'm like, oh, state, the state makes sense, you know? But reading this really changed my idea of a state as a whole, and the idea of the state that we want to put into place. You know, it also made me more sympathetic to anarchists in that sense, because we do have the same end goals. Whereas before, maybe I was thinking of anarchy as something different. Even if I thought that we had the same ideals at the end of the day, mm -hmm. I think that reading this made me feel more confident in my beliefs. I mean, that's hard to overstate. No, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I feel way more assured and more, maybe armed is the wrong word, but... <laughs> I wrote in my notes that I've like, these are debate points. Like you can, if someone's like, well, gotcha, how about this? It's like, actually, <laughs> Lennon says I'm doing the Giga Chad face. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I feel a lot more, maybe confident is just the better way to put it. I feel a little bit more confident in being able to articulate what I think and why I think it, in, at least in the spaces that are in alignment with what Lennon has to say. Yeah, word. Another thing to be gained from reading this text, I think there is a vocabulary. There is a vocabulary of communism yeah. that can sometimes be a stumbling block, or certainly in my experience talking to other much more well-read MLMs or whatever, yeah. they'll throw around terms and so phrases. So much jargon. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's so esoteric and, and a little gatekeepy, I, yes. would, I would say. And I think that like reading this... I have a stronger understanding of the dictatorship of the proletariat, for example. So the next time somebody throws that term around to prove that they're smarter than me, I feel like a lot more, a lot more confident in my understanding of what it, what it is. Yeah. Even though the polemical bits of this text were probably the weakest parts because we are 115 years out from when they happened, I still think that I agree with you in that sense about that kind of vocabulary as well. Like before I had seen things like opportunism, but like, I had no fucking clue what that meant. You know, I know what opportunist, opportunism is in like a broad sense, yeah. but it seems that they are talking about something a little different here. And I think that reading this did give me a clearer understanding of that as well. Not that I, I don't want to become a, a jargon 
heavy person. Like, I don't want to be like, that's opportunism. Can't shoot me if I ever say that. Like, I accuse you of opportunism. No. Okay. But I do think that I am a little more understanding of what Lenin means or what anybody, I guess, means when they're saying that in a, in a Marxist discussion. I think, lastly, the other thing that uh, is to be gained from this text is a desire to learn, read and learn more about the Paris Commune. I think had I not read this, I probably wouldn't have seen it as as valuable a learning opportunity as it clearly is. Right. I don't. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It is central in their understanding of the future of their own development. Like they are seriously basing what they're about to do off of the Paris Commune, which, uh, to be honest, I had no clue. You know, I... Because it's like what comes after is always a question in my mind, and they're here for it. You know, they even do some like, you shouldn't say the word state. The word state is misleading. Maybe commune is a better word overall. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, a, there's a little bit of that linguistic debate in here, too, which I, I do appreciate. Yeah, I think it's kind of fun. All right, that was The State and Revolution by Lenin. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed it. It was a banger. Yes, quite. Uh, What's on tap for next episode? Next episode, that's right. Um, Yeah, on the next episode, we're going to be reading The Permanent Revolution by Leon Trotsky. Leon Trotsky. Change it up a little. You know, so far we've acted as orthodox communists, and I think it's time that we step on some toes. (laughs) Sorry. Just kidding. I'm looking forward to becoming a tanky, so... Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, the word tanky so far removed. It's so stupid, yeah. So, what did you think of this week's episode? We have yet to get receive any feedback, so we're curious for any feedback that listeners have. Yeah. Please let us know, you know, what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Did we misinterpret anything? You can email us at leftunreadfeedback at gmail.com. Send us an email. Yes, please. Any thoughts are welcome. Just to sign us off, I want to close with some words from Engels here, where he says... We set ourselves the ultimate aim of abolishing the state, i.e. all organized and systematic violence, all use of violence against people in general. We do not expect the advent of a system of society in which the principle of subordination of the minority to the majority will not be observed. In striving for socialism, however, we are convinced that it will develop into communism and therefore that the need for violence against people in general, for the subordination of one man to another and of one section of the population to another, will vanish altogether. Since people will become accustomed to observing the elementary conditions of social life without violence and without subordination. Dope. Dope. All right, man. Till next time. Bye.